On behalf of Pastor Mark Driscoll, we want to thank you for allowing us to bring you Jesus-centered Bible teaching. Like Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus. To get all of Pastor Mark's sermons, blogs, books, and other content, please visit us at markdriscoll.org. There you can also sign up to receive additional free content from Pastor Mark and support this ministry with a gift of any amount. Thank you. Well, howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here with our last final grand finale study of Ecclesiastes. This is part 18 of our Meaningless Life study through the book of Ecclesiastes together. This week's uh, title is Fear God, and the text is Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. And before I jump in, I just want to sincerely say thank you for those of you who have given me the great privilege and honor of uh, teaching you any of God's Word, especially Ecclesiastes. I'm thankful for that. I'm grateful for that. I hope it's beneficial for you. Ecclesiastes is one of the most difficult, but also one of the most insightful, I believe, and helpful books in the whole Bible. And I think that is doubly true for those who are young. So thank you for letting me teach. Thank you to those of you who have helped get the word out and those who have sent in encouraging uh, emails, just let me know how the uh, teaching has been helpful to you. And, uh, and I'll just start by praying. Father God, I pray for our final study together in Ecclesiastes. I pray God for those who are hearing this, that you would help them to pull the pieces out that are most applicable for their life, to provide them wisdom and uh, a go-forward plan of hope and joy and peace and fruitfulness with the Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, you are the spirit of wisdom. I pray you'd give us all wisdom, ears to hear, hearts to receive, and hands and feet willing to obey the instruction that we get. And uh, Lord, we ask that our time together would be pleasing to you, that it would be uh, profitable for us. And we ask for wisdom because you tell us to. And we ask for wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as the old adage goes, you save the best for last. That's why at a good concert, the last song, the conclusion of the set is always the biggest hit. You save the best for last. This is why as well, at least some of us eat dessert after the meal at the very end because we save the best for last. And the same is true in Ecclesiastes. The entire book thus far has explored the big theme of finding meaning in our fleeting life. And this is a massive issue. There's an older historian, Sir Arnold Toynbee. I just uh, am in the process of seeing my library come back together after a move to Phoenix. And um, one of the sets that was gifted to me from my late father-in-law's uh, library was Sir Arnold Toynbee's set of books, and they are a great uh, series of books on history. And he makes this statement, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says as he surveys history that our civilization, the Western world as we know it, is perhaps the first in the history of the world not to teach its citizens why they exist. That's a massive, massive massive oversight. Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? 
And the result is that everyone is trying to find meaning for their life or stuff meaning into their life or draw meaning out of their life. And there's no widespread agreement as to what the meaning of life is. Why are we here? What is the point? And sadly, some of us tend to just grab the the, the closest opportunity and answer on the bottom shelf, and that is, well, we're here to be happy. And then it's as if life has no meaning, value, or purpose when times get difficult or dark or desperate. And uh, the result is that when we get depressed, we get suicidal because what's even the point of living if the whole point of life is just happiness and joy and a hard time comes, then life isn't working, so I need to be exiting. And that explains the cultural mood and malaise of our very frustrated, activistic, depressed uh, culture of our day. If you don't know what the point of your life is, how in the world do you know how to live your life? If you don't know what the purpose of your life is, how in the world do you organize your life? If you don't know where you're going and what the whole point of your existence is, how do you make all those practical life decisions along the way like, where do I work? Do I go to college? What do I study? Should I get married? Who should I marry? How should we organize our life? How should I spend my money? What God should I worship? Should we have kids? If we have kids, how many kids? If we have that many kids, how do we raise those kids? What do we teach those kids? What values do we instill to those kids? It just It's overwhelming life is when you don't have a clear sense of, of purpose, of meaningfulness. This is why even my friend, Pastor Rick Warren, uh, he writes The Purpose Driven Life, and it becomes the most popular English book in the history of the world, second only to the Bible, because everybody wants to know, what is the purpose of my life? And, and the answer is found in Ecclesiastes. And what he's going to do for us this week, he's just going to bottom line it. Don't you love somebody who just sort of bottom lines it? I don't know about you, I'm one of those guys, you give me 57,000 pages and 2,700 footnotes and footnotes about the footnotes and fine print about the fine print. My eyes glaze over and I just want to yell, just give me the bottom line, summarize it, get to the point. What do you want? What is the deal? Give me the Cliff Notes version. Give me the tweetable line. What's the point? We all need that. We want that. And Ecclesiastes provides that. Thus far, the entire book has explored the meaning of our fleeting life. And this week, he saves the best for last, and he gives us the bottom line for how to keep life aligned with God's will. Now, before jumping in and giving you the grand finale, I need to walk through the text. So Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, it's a bit of a precursor. What he's going to do is just remind us who he is. Keep this in mind. The teacher was considered wise, he says, and he taught the people everything he knew. He listened carefully to many proverbs, studying and classifying them. The teacher sought to find just the right words to express truths clearly. So Solomon is saying, before I give you my grand finale, before I give you my conclusion, before I give you my thesis statement, my summary closing argument, let me remind you of who I am. I'm a teacher. I've devoted my whole life to studying the meaning of life. 
I've read all the philosophers. I've read all the historians. I've talked to all the spiritual and religious leaders. I've pulled all the books off the shelf. I've taken all the classes. I've done all of the trips to survey all of the options. I've invested all of the money. I've spent all of the time. And I've devoted my whole life to the pursuit of one thing, the, the determining of the meaning of life. And we need to remind ourselves, this is history's salutorian, second only to Jesus Christ in knowledge and wisdom and insight. He is history's richest man. He is history's most powerful man, second only to Jesus Christ. And what he's trying to get us to do is to trust his conclusion. Um, in the same way, regarding our body, when we go into a medical doctor who has devoted their whole life to the study of one thing, some particular ailment, and we find ourselves suffering from that ailment, we are yielding ourselves to their wisdom. We are listening to them because we assume and we trust they know a lot that we don't because this is what they've spent their whole life studying. We do this with heart surgeons. We do this with cancer treatment centers. We do this with accountants who help us with our taxes. We do this with auto mechanics who fix our broken vehicle. We do this all the time. We lean on someone else for their wisdom, for their expertise, for their study, for their insight. None of us is born with an innate knowledge of how life works. We don't have innate wisdom and know what to do. We need to be taught. We need to learn. And, and God provides for us certain people who are specialists and they've devoted themselves to a focused and unique area of study. And as a result, if we don't know what we are talking about and we walk in and they tell us their findings and we just simply disagree or argue with them, we're being very foolish. This is like someone who hasn't done any research telling the cancer doctor, you don't know what you're talking about. This is like someone who has not done any research telling the heart surgeon, you don't know what you're doing. Uh, when Solomon gives us his brief resume, this is his LinkedIn profile, what he's doing for us is he's saying, hey, before I say something, I want you to open your ears to listen. I want you to open your heart to receive, and I want to open your hands to obey. I, I need you to consider this. And what he's basically doing, he's urging us not to waste his life or our life, his life of studying and our life of learning and obeying and applying and heeding his instruction. The point is this, the key to wisdom is to be teachable, to allow certain people in your life to be your teacher. You can't trust everything you think. You can't believe everything you think. You can't evaluate everything else by what you believe. There needs to be a humility, a teachability, a yieldability, if that's even a word, to submit ourselves to someone else and to say, teach me. I've got some things to learn. Will you allow Solomon to teach you? Will you invite him in to instruct you before he gives you the summation of his entire life of examination? And this is his studies. And he, he, he pursued various pleasure outlets and he spent money and he amassed a harem and he built a huge house and he ate the finest foods and 
He spent money enjoying the most lavish lifestyle. And he has not only examined from afar, he is experienced up close all that life offers. And so when he gives us his his instruction, his summation, his grand finale, his closing argument, will we listen? Or do we think we're smarter than he is? Do we think that this is just an old man who's writing down some old ideas in an old book? Or is this a man who was inspired by God to write eternal truths that are always timely because they're timeless? He goes on to talk to us a little bit about wisdom. And what he tells us is the same thing that a doctor tells us before they undertake a procedure. And that is this, this is going to hurt a little bit. Uh, A couple of my sons at various points, they were climbing or fell and had to go in for stitches. And as I'm holding my sons and they're very distraught, the doctor tells them this is going to hurt a little bit. When he tells them that, he's telling them that he's going to use a little bit of pain to prevent even greater pain. If your whole life is to avoid pain, eventually you could avoid uh, a little pain and then you could find yourself facing an excruciating pain. God allows little pains to save us and warn us from the big pains. This is why if you're a little kid and you put your hand you know, over a hot flame, you feel a little discomfort and you withdraw your hand before severe damage is done. That little bit of pain saves you from a much greater pain. Uh, This is why you feel a little tingling in your arm. It's a little pain. You go into the doctor, you realize you've got serious heart trouble. That little pain saved you from a much greater pain. So what he's going to tell us is that wisdom at first, it brings a little pain. But the point of that pain is to prevent greater pain. He says it this way uh, in Ecclesiastes 12.11, The words of the wise are like cattle prods, painful but helpful. Their collected sayings are like a nail-studded stick with which a shepherd drives the sheep. See, in the ancient world, a sheep, well, and and the Bible compares us to sheep, you and I. Uh, We all like sheep have gone astray, meaning Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, and he assigns spiritual leadership to look after, tend to, care for his people. Those people are called shepherds. And sheep are, you know, let's be a little offensive, but let's just roll with the truth. They're sort of dumb and defenseless. Those are the two marks of a sheep. They're dumb. Sheep are not particularly bright animals. I've got a German shepherd. I can train the German shepherd to obey commands, to respond to commands in various languages, to obey Eh, not really so with sheep. They're, 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 not a, they're not a smart animal. They're a dumb animal. And they're also defenseless. Sheep don't have any way of protecting themselves. They're not fast enough to run away. They can't fly and, and remove themselves from danger. They can't you know, rise up on two legs and punch back. They don't have great claws or fangs with which to defend themselves. I mean, sheep are, in fact, such a defenseless, dumb animal that when little children can't sleep at night, our answer is, we'll just lay there and count sheep because there's nothing more soothing and and nothing less intimidating than the thought of a sheep. They just look like a cotton ball with four legs and a couple of ears. And and what happens with a shepherd is you'll see that his sheep are 
dumb and defenseless. And as they wander off the path, they don't understand they're wandering into harm's way and danger, and they're going to get themselves killed. So what a shepherd will do, they'll sort of prod the animal. And here it's using the analogy of some of your translations will say a goat. It's basically a stick with some nails in it. And it's a little tap tap. It's not a it's not a wound. It's not a violent blow. It's a little tap tap, kind of like when you're riding a horse, you use the spurs to sort of give a little tap tap to the animal. And then it course corrects the animal. And that little bit of pain keeps that animal from wandering into a place of greater pain. Well, we're the sheep. And what Solomon is saying is he's saying, you know, God's a good shepherd. And when he gives us wisdom, sometimes wisdom feels like a, a stick with some nails in it. It's like, well, here it comes. Wow, that hurt a little bit. And that's how wisdom initially feels. Just like um, before a surgery, here comes the needle, there's a little anesthesia. But this is ultimately going to help. It's going to hurt for a minute, but it's ultimately going to help. That that little bit of pain is really a gift from God, and it saves us from a greater pain. And that's what he's saying, that when we first hear these things, our, our first inclination can be defensiveness, to feel hurt to feel uh, offended, to feel uh, ridiculed, belittled. To, we feel a little stupid. We feel a little hurt. We feel a little dishonored, disrespected, and, and that's not God's intent. Uh, he's just trying to course correct you. He's trying to help you and me and all of us get back onto a path of wisdom, and a path of wisdom leads to life. And that's what God wants for us, ultimately, is to live a fruitful, enjoyable life on the path of salvation, following Jesus, the good shepherd. And wisdom is like a stick that when we wander off the path, a little bit of pain gets us back on the path and saves us from greater pain. Well, the whole point is that one of the most important things we can welcome, receive in this life, pursue in this life is wisdom. This is a mega theme of the Bible, especially the wisdom literature and especially the book of Ecclesiastes, which is in that category of wisdom literature. But Solomon tells us that as we pursue wisdom, we need to understand what the point of wisdom is. The point of wisdom is not just the accruing of facts, but it's the obeying of instruction. See, knowledge is what you know, and that's good. Wisdom is what you do. Knowledge isn't helpful unless you use it. That's the point. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that knowledge all by itself puffs up. It leads to pride, haughtiness. It leads to perfectionism. It leads to religious legalism. It leads to self-righteous criticism. Some people study a lot, do a little, and find themselves wearing a striped shirt, carrying a whistle, and blowing fouls in everyone else's life. That was wrong. You said it wrong. You did it wrong. You're wrong. That's wrong. You're wrong. That's wrong. The truth is that it's a lot harder to obey something than it is to just know something. It's a lot harder to do something than it is just to memorize something. Knowledge is what you know. Wisdom is what you do with what you know. And so they're both exceedingly important, but knowledge all by itself puffs up. Wisdom is humble. Wisdom is obedient. Wisdom does what knowledge says. And the result is you find that life is hard. You may know something is the right thing to do, but it's still really hard to do it. And some people, rather than obeying, they just sort of continue to pursue studying. I know guys with horrible marriages that have done 
massive, massive biblical word studies on words like head and kephale, and and they could just write tomes and argue endlessly about the biblical meaning of the word headship and submission. But the truth is, their wives don't like them because they're just jerks. That would be, according to the Bible, a knowledgeable fool. There is such a thing as a knowledgeable fool. Somebody who knows every verse in the Bible on training up a child in parenting, but they don't really have an investment or an emotional engagement with their own kids. They're just sort of distant rule makers and law keepers. Um, there are a lot of people who know a lot of things that still live a foolish life because they don't do them. And the truth is, we've all done that in certain days and ways, and we all have proclivities and tendencies in our own soul toward folly, at least in certain aspects of our life. We all need to study. We all need to learn. We all need to grow. We all need to research. We all need to consider the downside. But at some point, you got to put the books down and you got to go do something. This is what he says in Ecclesiastes 12, 12. But my child, let me give you some further advice. Be careful for writing books is endless and much study wearies you out. Some of your translations will say that of the making of books, there is no end and much study wearies the mind. You can reach the point where you have paralysis of analysis. You have overthought and overstudied and over-researched and over-analyzed a situation till you reach a point where you're completely paralyzed and you just don't know what to do. Have you ever done that? Um, this can be with something very practical, like what kind of car should I buy? I'm going to go out and do a whole lot of research. Okay, that's good. But at some point, you got to buy a car. And some people become so overwhelmed with the amount of information that they've accrued that they don't know how to make a decision. They don't know how to translate it into an action. This can be true when you go to buy a house. Yes, you need to do all your research on the home and the condition and get a good appraisal and fair market value and negotiate a good bank loan with a good interest rate and compare it to your budget and make sure you're not house poor. Make sure that if the market tanks, you're not upside down. Yes, get a, get a full inspection, make sure that it's in good condition. If at all possible, go ahead and get a home warranty with it so that if anything breaks in the first year, at least it's covered and you're not upside down. All of that, super wise and good. But at some point, you got to buy a house. Right? These are all decisions, experiences I've made in my own life. You know, do all my homework and research to try and do the best to make a wise decision. Um, this can be true for choosing a career path. This can be true for choosing a major in college. I've seen kids just completely melt down, not declare a major because they've done so much analysis that they've reached a point of paralysis. They're overwhelmed. I've seen people do this even with trying to consider who they should marry. They start with a list of here's who I want and here's what I want to be and here's what I want for my future. And then they think and they study and they pray and they research. And next thing you know, they've got something as long as the scroll of Isaiah, it's like a job description for 27 perfect people who never go to bed and just are seeking to obey the hopeful list of the potential spouse. And they don't know who to pick. They don't know how to date. They don't know how to make a decision. They don't know how to get engaged. They don't know how to proceed forward because they've done so much homework. They've worn themselves out. They have got themselves overwhelmed and fearful. And the result is they can't just make a decision.
I mean, I know of one couple I could still remember. They had been dating for 11 years. And I asked this guy, I was like, when are you going to propose to this poor woman who obviously has a high pain threshold? He said, well, there's just some more things I need to know about her before I can be sure. I said, here's the deal, man. You're never sure. There's always some amount of risk and some degree of faith involved in every decision. If you are waiting for something that is absolutely incontrovertibly foolproof, whether it be a job, a relationship, it be a purchase, you will be waiting for the rest of your life to just garner a little more data. And it's a good thing to do your homework. It's a good thing to do your research, but it's a bad thing to let it overtake your life and prevent you from making a decision to keep you from obeying your instruction. That's what he's saying. And, and I'll be honest, okay, admittedly, I'm a nerd, at least a bit of a nerd. I've got around 5,000 books in my personal library. I have tens of thousands of books on my laptop. In addition to all that information, every day there's a new book published that I actually would find interesting. There are more books written, not to mention blogs like mine, podcasts like mine. I'm contributing to all this content flow to some degree as well not to mention articles and other means of research and lectures and classes. Boy, if you want to learn something, there has never been a time in the history of the world where there is so much access to so much information. But the truth is there, there's not a lot of wisdom because people don't act on the information. And some people become so addicted to the obtaining of facts and information and data that they never move forward to uh, obedience and to results and toward activity. That's what he's saying. So here we are. The grand finale of the book. If someone walked up to you and said, can I ask you a question? And you said, yes. They said, I just want to know one thing. And they could say it in any way. What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? Why are we here? Life is difficult. What's the point? Okay, there are various ways that this same question is expressed. How would you answer it? What would you say? Do you even have an answer? As you even think about it, don't you find it a little overwhelming? Yeah, boy, there's a lot of ways to answer that. Some people would say, well, do what makes you happy. Some people would say, life is what you make of it. What do you think the purpose is? Some would say, well, we all have a different answer to that question. You just need to find the one that works for you. Most of our answers, or at least most of the answers that are given, they're absolutely self-centered, self-seeking, self-serving. What do you think? What do you want? What do you desire? What do you need? What do you long for? What do you hope for? And it slips us into the center 
so that everything and everyone orbits around us, and the result is we're miserable. Because we were never created to be the center. And when we become the center, particularly of our own lives, we become miserable. We were made to worship someone else. We were made to honor someone else. We were made to glorify someone else. We were made to serve someone else. I always like it when somebody who is able to simplify things, not make them simplistic, because life is not simplistic, but to simplify it, to boil it down, to break it down, to bottom line it, to summarize it. You know what I'm talking about. Somebody's just, they get to it. They, I, I still remember certain professors in college and some would get up and they would talk for hours and you're like, I, I, I'm lost. I am lost. I don't know what we're talking about. Someone else would get up and say two sentences and it was like, oh, that's it. That Now I understand. They were able to just sort of cut through the noise and cut through the clutter and, and, and reduce all of the verbiage and all of the study and all of the research. Solomon is going to do that for us. Like life, the book of Ecclesiastes has meandered and wandered, and at some points it feels like we're driving around a cul-de-sac, and other times it feels like we're lost, and sometimes it feels like we're making progress, and then we realize that it's, it's debatable if we are, and then all of a sudden here he gives us the summation. You ready? Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. After a whole life of study a whole life of experience, limitless resources, tremendous IQ, insatiable appetite, godly and ungodly behavior, inspired by the Holy Spirit, here is the answer to life's most important question. He says, that's the whole story here now is my final conclusion, right? If I was a drummer, this is where I'd give you a drum roll. Fear God and obey his commands. Fear God and obey his commands. I'll say it again. Fear God and obey his commands. He goes on to say, for this is everyone's duty. This is what you were made for. This is your purpose. This is your telos. This is your goal. He then says, God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. God made you. God judges you. Everyone and everything is judged by God. Therefore, two things, cause effect, fear, and obey God. Here's what he's saying. Everything begins and ends, rises and falls, succeeds and fails with the fear of the Lord. 
That's what he's saying. I'll tell you what, we live in a day, God is love, God is love, God is love, God is love. All of a sudden it's like God is a spineless, tolerant jellyfish with no spiritual vertebrae, no convictions, no justice, no wrath, no judgment, no holiness, no hell, no consequence. God's just like an aging hippie grandpa wearing a tie-dyed bandana and kicking a hacky sack while smoking a joint and saying, I'm cool with whatever. It's, it's that bizarre leftover remnant of a hippie subculture that has now been projected onto God. The result is that there is very little, if any, fear of God. And as soon as you start talking to Christians about you need to fear God, immediately they go to, well, fear doesn't mean be scared of him. Let me tell you, it kind of does. When the Bible says, don't just fear the one who can kill you, fear the one who can kill you and throw you into hell, that's kind of scary. You know, it's a fearful and dreadful thing, the Bible says, to fall into the hands of the living God. Man, there, there is so little regard for God. There is so little consideration of God. It's like, it's like God's job is just to say yes to our desires. That's not how it works. We are to say yes to God's desires. I believe Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes and also contributed to Proverbs. Proverbs 1.7 says this, Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Some of your translations say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and fools despise wisdom and knowledge. The beginning of all wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Wise counsel is great. Ample resources are great. A phenomenal education is great. Relational support is great. Significant knowledge is great if you fear God. If you don't fear God, none of those things are ultimately of any value whatsoever to the quality of your life. If you don't fear God, you're not going to listen. If you don't fear God, you're not going to obey. If you don't fear God, you're not going to act. To fear God is that. It is to live with a constant, deep belief, conviction that God sees and knows all, that we must and will all give an account to him for everything. Do you fear God? Now, let me say this. The question is not whether or not our lives are driven, motivated, informed by fear. The question is not, does fear play a significant role in our life and decision-making? The question is, rather, not if we will fear, but who we will fear. That's the question. Let me say it another way. If you don't fear God, you'll fear someone else in the place of God. To fear the Lord is to consider God above everything and everyone else. 
To fear the Lord is to do what is right in God's eyes, even if it means that the outcome will likely not be in our best interest. I was talking to someone recently, I won't divulge the details, but they are left in a very difficult professional position whereby they have a couple of options and every one of them is not to their benefit. And so they would like another way out. They would like another option, another decision. But the only way to get one is to do something ungodly, to lie, to cheat, cheat to steal, to, to rig the system, to do something unethical or illegal or at least immoral. They're saying, well, if I would just do it that way, I could find a way out of this and then I wouldn't have to suffer the consequences. Fear the Lord says, do what is right and pay the price. Do what is right and suffer the consequences. Do what is right and trust the Lord. And you may lose. You may suffer. You might. That's what the fear of the Lord is. So if we do fear the Lord, we're guided by the following kinds of questions that help us make godly and wise life decisions. If you fear the Lord, there'll be four questions that, that just sort of emanate from your heart. This becomes part of your decision-making grid. And I know some of you right now, you're in a very difficult position. Life has forced you to make some decisions. I know because you've been sending me emails, some of you are trying to decide your college, your major in college, trying to decide your career path, trying to decide who you will marry, trying to decide if you'll get a divorce, trying to decide how you will handle your finances. Some of you are trying to decide what to do with complex medical situations or strained relationships with others. Some of you are trying to decide whether you should stay at your church or go to another church or what God would have for you. As you're listening to this, there are decisions in your life that are pressing, they're painful, they're problematic, and you've got to make a decision. Well, what do you do? Start with the fear of the Lord. And then you ask questions like, what does the Bible say? That's the first question. How do you know the fear of the Lord? How do you know the will of the Lord? Well, you go to the word of the Lord. What does the Bible say? Somebody recently asked me, they said, I'm really struggling to make ends meet. Could I do this to get this? I said, no, that's stealing. You'd be taking it from your company. No. Well, if I don't pay my bills, this is going to, well, you, the fear of the Lord says you don't, you don't deal with debt through thievery. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Number two, what godly people can I seek for wise counsel? Solomon here is serving as a wise counselor. We all need wise counselors. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. We all need that. Who can I seek for wise counsel? Godly counsel, not just people who will agree with me or back me up. What godly people can I seek for wise counsel? If you're beginning with the fear of the Lord, you want people that are filled with the spirit of the Lord and the word of the Lord and the fear of the Lord and they will help inform your decision-making. 
The truth is we all have some people that we go to for advice because we know they're going to tell us it's okay to do the wrong thing. That's not godly or wise counsel. Number three, how can I best glorify God in this situation? Not how can I win? Not how can I succeed? Not how can I get the outcome that I want? I had a woman recently say, what can I do to keep my husband from leaving me? I said, look, I can't promise you that. I guess you could treat him like God and go to him and say, I'll do anything you want. Tell me, just don't leave me. And then you're not operating out of the fear of the Lord. You're operating out of the fear of divorce and the fear of the husband. I said, I don't want you to get divorced. That's not what I'm trying to do here. But you can't say, I will do anything to save my marriage. You need to say, I will do everything in a way that glorifies God. Because some of the things, frankly, that her husband wants her to do, they're sinful. And if she agrees to those, maybe she'll keep her husband, but she'll keep her husband at the risk of fearing the Lord. And if he's going to put her in that kind of terrible dilemma where she has to choose between basically her husband or her God, well, then she has to choose her God. That's the fear of the Lord. How can I best glorify God in this situation? That's the third question. The fourth question is simply, what does God want me to do? Fear of the Lord starts with, God, I want to do whatever you want me to do. God, what do you want me to do? I'm going to your word. I'm going to prayer. I'm going to wise counsel. I just want to know what you want me to do. And I want to do whatever you want me to do. That's the, ultimately, that's the fear of the Lord. I'll never forget. I was uh, praying with a brand new Christian and they were in a very difficult circumstance. And I said, well, let's just pray about it. And they prayed the most beautiful, simple, honest prayer. They, they just said, God, I want to do whatever you want me to do. Just let me know what you want me to do. I was like, that's a good prayer. God, I want to do whatever you want me to do. What do you want me to do? Please tell me and I'll do that. That's a good prayer. That's a heart that fears the Lord. That's not a heart that's trying to manipulate the Lord or control the circumstances or get a certain outcome or use the Lord, but trust the Lord. Now, the default, okay, here's the downside. So you say, well, what happens if I don't fear the Lord? Well, you're going to fear someone else instead. What I'm going to share with you now it's going to feel like a little bit of pain, just like Solomon said it would. And in saying this, I'm not saying I am wise and you are foolish, therefore you are blessed to subscribe to my podcast. What I'm saying is we're all foolish and we've all done this. And it's good to remind each other so that we can help each other. If you don't fear the Lord, you'll fear someone else in the place of the Lord. This is what Proverbs 29, 25, also a book in addition to Ecclesiastes, like I said, that was at least contributed to, if not edited by, Solomon. Here's what it says. Fearing people is a dangerous trap but trusting the Lord means safety. Some of your translations will say, the fear of the Lord is a trap. Others will say, the, uh, excuse me, the fear of man is a trap. Others will say the fear of man is a snare. The whole point is, um, if you fear man, if you fear people instead of God, 
a trap is set and you're going to step into it. Places like Alaska, rural areas, trappers make their whole living by going out and setting up traps and they're waiting for unsuspecting animals to step into the trap and then they're caught and they're destroyed. Satan is like that. He's out there setting traps everywhere all the time. He's promising freedom, but he brings bondage. He's promising life and he brings death. He's promising pleasure and he brings pain. Just like a trapper puts bait in a trap, so Satan sets a trap and he baits you with a lie. Usually it's related to a comfort or a pleasure. And then you are trapped by it. And what he's saying is that the fear of people or the fear of man, as juxtaposed with the fear of the Lord, it's a trap. But fear of the Lord means safety. Fear of the Lord keeps you out of the trap. That's what he's saying. To fear people is to hold a person or a group of people, your parents, your friends, your spouse, your kids, your coworkers, above everyone and everything else. So you, to fear people is to put them in the God seat. To fear people is to do what other people want you to do, demand that you do, or pressure you to do, even if it's not what God wants you to do. If we do fear people, then we're guided by the following kinds of questions that help us make ungodly and unwise decisions. How do you know that the fear of man has set in, that the fear of people is set in? Well, you start asking yourself questions. Well, what do other people say I should do? And we're not talking about godly and wise counselors. We're talking about their image of you, their impression of you, their perspective of you. And in the age of social media, boy, this is more pressure than ever. So all of a sudden, it's not, what does the Bible say? It's like, well, what do these people say? Number two, who can I find to agree with me so I can do what I am being told to do? See, this is where you're not seeking wise and godly counsel. You're going to people and you're saying, well, tell me what you think I should do. And then gathering them together and saying, well, will you tell me what to do and I'll do that. That's not the fear of the Lord. That's the fear of people. That's not the obeying of God. That's the obeying of people. And if they're not wise or godly people, well, then you're putting yourself in harm's way. You're stepping into the trap. Number three, you start asking questions like, how can I hide this from God and godly people? How can I keep this a secret? How can I keep this from getting found out? How can I maintain the appearance that I'm one kind of person and then privately make decisions that reveal that I'm a totally different kind of person? How can I be a secret hypocrite? How can I have a life that is unseen and unknown and it's a secret sick life that no one else knows and how can I keep this from God and how can I keep this from others and how can I keep from the consequences? And number four, as opposed to asking, what does God want me to do? It's what do other people want me to do? Now, I'll give you some painful examples. I've had the great pleasure over the years of pastoring a lot of single young women. And I've had this conversation in various forms multiple times. Why are you dating that guy? Well, you know, I, I think he cares about me and I think I can change him. Okay, I don't know if that's true. Why are you living with them? You're not supposed to live with them. You're not married. 
well, he really needed the help and he said it was the best thing for him. Okay, but it's not the best thing for Jesus. Why are you sleeping with him? Well, you know, um, you know, I really love him and I care about him. And, and I feel like if, if I don't sleep with him, then he's going to cheat on me with somebody else. What? Oh, so you're going to commit sin with him so he doesn't go commit sin with someone else? This is not a wise foundation. Well, what if you move out or what if you stop sleeping with him? Well, then he's going to break up with me and, and then I'll be all alone. It's like, no, you'll have the Lord Jesus and God's people. You just let this young man take the Jesus position in your life. Jesus says, don't date him, and you do. Jesus says, don't live with him, and you do. And Jesus says, don't sleep with him, and you do. And maybe you've got girlfriends around you that are saying, well, it's okay. God is love. Who are we to judge? You find foolish counselors who agree with you, and you're living out of the fear of man. You don't want your boyfriend to be angry with you. You don't want your boyfriend to reject you. You don't want your boyfriend to be disappointed with you. But it's okay for Jesus to feel all of those things. Like he's been rejected. Like he's been abandoned. Like, like he's been neglected. Which relationship is the most important? I've asked this to many young women, and I do so try to with a fatherly tone. Like, so who's the most important man in your life? Jesus or this guy? We'll say, well, Jesus is. Well, then you got to obey Jesus and not this guy. But if this guy and Jesus are telling you two totally different things, only one of them needs to be the person that you fear. And it should be Jesus and not that guy. Because Jesus is the one who loves you. Jesus is the one who honors you. Jesus is the one who protects you. Jesus is the one who cherishes you. Jesus is not the one who's using and abusing you. Dealt with a wife not long ago. I said, well, this is what you need. I asked her took her through these questions. I literally asked her, what does the Bible say? She knew. What do the wise godly people who give counsel in your life say? She knew. How can I glorify God? She knew. What does God want me to do? She knew. I said, okay, are you going to do that? And she said, I can't. I said, why? She said, my husband will be so angry. Well, do you fear him or do you fear God? I had the same thing with a guy recently. Well, if I do that, my wife will leave me because she just wants to do whatever the heck she wants. And if I tell her that's not a good thing, then she's just going to leave. Well, I don't want her to leave. I'm not trying to drive her away. But do you fear your wife or do you fear your God? Are you going to obey your wife or obey your God? Are you going to do what's right in the eyes of your God? Or are you going to have this moody little God over here called your wife and you need to keep offering sacrifices to keep her from punishing you? This is like a pagan religion you've got over here where your wife is this sort of moody deity that requires sacrifices of your emotional well-being and your finances and your relationship and your health and your sleep. And unless you keep sacrificing all this to her, she's just going to get violent and she's going to harm you. This is, this is, this is a false religion. This is, this is a moody God that you keep offering sacrifices to to keep them from punishing you. This isn't a marriage. This is a problem. Do you get it? This is why a lot of people are stressed and depressed. That's why they're conflicted. This is why they're compromised. This is why they're confused. There's a biblical counselor. His name is Ed Welch. He's written a lot of good things on this. And he says, fear in the biblical sense includes being afraid of someone. But it extends to holding someone in awe. Being controlled or mastered by people. Worshipping other people or putting your trust in people, or needing people. He just goes on to say, the fear of man can be summarized this way. 
we replace God with people instead of a biblically guided fear of the Lord, we fear others. When we're in our teens, it's called peer pressure. When we're older, it's called people-pleasing. Recently, it has been called codependency. Ecclesiastes is a 3,000-year-old book, but this is a constant human problem. That's why the Word of God is not... It's not an old word. It's an eternal word. So it's always a timely word. So let me ask you a hard, good question. I love you. I hope you'll hear it. This question I ask myself, who do you fear? Who do you simply have to have the approval of? Whose praise of you means the world to you? Whose criticism or rejection of you would destroy you? Which person or persons are you different around? Adjusting yourself, morphing yourself, changing yourself, adjusting yourself to fit their expectations and become who they want you to be rather than who God made you to be. Here's a question I have for us all. Maybe this will really bottom line our whole discussion. Who do you sin for? Who do you sin for? Someone in your life that you do something for, that you just know is wrong in the sight of God, but you do it for them. This can be you gossip with them, you sleep with them, you steal with them, you get drunk with them, you fornicate with them, you commit adultery with them, you flirt with them, you rage with them, you plot with them, you scheme with them. Who do you sin for? See, fear is a massive problem. And the answer or the anecdote to the fear of people is the fear of God. Fear is a driving force in our life. The question is, are we driven by fear of man or fear of God? And so it's such a massive issue. You've probably heard me say this, but the number one command in the whole Bible, appearing roughly 150 times, is fear not. The only cure for the fear of people is the fear of God. You cannot simultaneously fear God and fear people. In the same way, if you're going for a walk, you can't go left and right at the same time. You can't. You can walk left or you can walk right. You can fear God or you can fear people, but you can't do both at the same time. This is an issue of ultimate allegiance. Either Jesus is your king or someone else is. There's only one throne over your life and only one person can sit on that throne at a time. Functionally, fundamentally, practically, honestly, who is it? Who is it? If it isn't Jesus, a trap has been set. And sometimes we'd say, but I do that because I love them. 
No, you don't. That's not how God loves us. When we fear people, we give them what they want. We don't give them what they need. That's not loving. When we say yes to people that we're supposed to be saying no to, we're unable to say yes to God. And that's not actually loving God or loving that person or those people. The truth is, when we fear people, we cannot love them. When we fear people, we're so dependent upon their approval that we're using them, which means we're not loving them. Loving someone is very different than using someone. And when you when you fear God, you can love people by doing what is right. When you, when you fear people, you, you use people. And as a result, you can't love people. Fear of God frees us to obey God. Fear of God frees us to love people. If you want to obey God and love people, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and fools despise wisdom and knowledge. The beginning of, of truly obeying God and loving people is fearing God. And so here's the truth. When you or I struggle to obey God, the real underlying reason, at least in that moment, with that decision is that we have stopped fearing God. This, this means that people don't have an obedience problem. They have a fear problem. And the fear problem manifests itself in, in a disobedience problem. So, okay, here, here's, here's the question. Is there any area of your life that you are not obeying God? Okay, let me tell you this. Any area of your life that you're not obeying God because you don't fear God in that area of your life. Someone or something is driving your fear and you are making your decision out of fear of that thing, not faith in your God. My dear friend, hear me in this. Just seeking to be more obedient is not all that is required for obedience to occur. Obedience is the fruit, it is the byproduct of the fear of the Lord. So whatever habitual, ongoing, deep-rooted, sinful struggle, foolish decision-making that there is in any area of your life and mine, under that is that in that particular place, we do not fear God. What does it look like then for that area to be governed by a fear, a reverence, a respect, a little bit of right, holy terror, an acknowledgement, a worship of, a yieldedness to, a submission under God as he truly is and God for what he truly says. If you will invite the fear of the Lord into all of your life, you will immediately start to obey the Lord in all of your life. 
and you will grow in wisdom through the duration of your whole life. And you won't regret it. I love you. I appreciate the ability to teach God's word a little bit. Let me pray for you. Father, thanks for 18 weeks to meander through Ecclesiastes with a rough one-and-done shot on a little microphone from my study at the house. Uh, God, I thank you for the age of technology where I can sit down and talk and they can listen and technology connects us to the timeless Word of God and the Holy Spirit allows the Word of God to do a deep, penetrating work in our hearts and our lives. God, we come to you saying that we have all acted foolishly we have all thought foolishly. We've all been motivated by fear of people and consequences and pain and results and outcomes that we didn't like. And the result is that we lost sight of the fear of the Lord. And the result is that we started making foolish decisions that caused us to step into a trap that caused nothing but pain and death and, and, and brought upon us the very things that we were most fearful of in the first place. Lord, it is true that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So, Help us to learn how to fear you, not as an evil God who's seeking to punish us, but as a holy God who has every right to. Not living in absolute, abject, constant terror that unless we're perfect, that you won't be pleased with us, but in confidence that because of the Lord Jesus, we're already perfect in your sight and that you are our Father. And if we turn to you, you will receive us. If we seek of you, that you will give to us. If we ask wisdom from you, you'll deposit it to us. That if we invite you into all of our life and every aspect of decision-making, which is ultimately what the fear of the Lord means for the believer, that you're a good, loving Father who will help us, who will counsel us, who will correct us, who will instruct us. And Lord, even though it's painful, we thank you for those moments where we feel a bit of sting, but it's a little pain that's keeping us from a greater pain. May we heed that. May we learn from that. May we yield from that. May we respond to that and stick on a path with the Lord Jesus, our good shepherd. And Lord, we thank you that there is wisdom to be had. And we thank you that the scriptures tell us what the purpose, the point, the tell us, the meaning, the end of life is. It is to fear God and obey his commandments, because for that we were made. And for that, we'll give an account. So I pray for myself and I pray for my friends that we would fear you and obey you. And in that, we would find great joy because we would be doing the very thing that you made us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.